Father, it is true. God, you are so good to us, more than we deserve, more than we can comprehend. You are good to us. And Father, as I open up your word today and preach from it, I want to thank you for your word's clarity, God. I want to thank you for your word's power. And I pray that you would speak through me today. I pray that my preaching would not be in persuasive words of wisdom, but a demonstration of your spirit and power, so that our faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but the power of God. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, Sage Mon. It is an honor to be with you this morning. It's, it's really hard to put into words um, just how thankful I am to have been confirmed as your next senior pastor. The love and the generosity that this church has poured out on myself and my family um, over the last week or two has been unbelievable. Thank you for all your letters and your cards. We've read all of them. It has ministered to us in deep and profound ways, and I'm beyond excited about the opportunities that lay ahead of us as a church. <clears throat> now, we have a lot to cover today, so let's go ahead and jump in. First of all, I want to take a minute and talk about what we're doing over the next few weeks together as a church. I know we've been going through the book of Philippians, sort of verse by verse. Pastor Freeman has done an amazing, outstanding job of preaching through that, and I sat him down a couple weeks ago, and I said, you know, what do you want to do? Um, where do you want to go moving forward? And he said, honestly, Matt, I would love a break. And so um, what we're going to do is, uh, first of all, well, let me say this. I want to let you know that Pastor Freeman is going to be on our teaching team. He's going to continue to be teaching in the near future. But right now, we're giving him a, a well-deserved break from the pulpit. And what we're going to do is for the next eight weeks, we're going to go verse by verse through the Beatitudes, which is at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And so let me say this. You know, one of the things that marks the Christian life is that we're supposed to look different and think differently than the world thinks. And the Sermon on the Mount was the blueprint for how Christians are supposed to live. You know, last week we talked about being a lion-chasing church. And if we're going to be that, and, and we're going to do that, if we're actually going to be a lion-chasing church, then first and foremost, our lives have to look like the greatest lion-chaser that's ever lived, who is Jesus Christ. And that's what the Beatitudes are. The Beatitudes are the attributes, and they're the characteristics of a follower of Jesus. Now, before we look at the text together, let me give you some context of what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus stood in front of the multitudes near the Sea of Galilee, and he preached what is arguably the most important sermon in the history of the world, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the primary things that Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is that he is coming to this planet, he came to this planet to establish a new kingdom. As a matter of fact, that's one of the subjects that he talked about maybe more than any other subject, was that he came to establish a new kingdom. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes two things really clear. Number one, that a new kingdom has come. And number two, that he is the king of that new kingdom. And so the question for us is, since a new kingdom has come and a new king is reigning 
over that new kingdom, then how do we respond to this new kingdom and that new king? That's what the, that's what the Beatitudes Church are all about. Jesus is saying, these are the attributes. These are the characteristics that citizens of my kingdom, loyal to my kingship, are going to have in their lives. Now, let me, let me say this, a little side note here. As we go through the Beatitudes, I want you to keep in mind that the Beatitudes are not suggestions. The Beatitudes are, are not some things that Jesus says, hey, if you're a Christian, I want you to consider doing them. But the Beatitudes are the attributes and the characteristics that Jesus is saying are going to show up in your life if, in fact, you are saved and a redeemed child of God. So let's look at the first one today, and then we'll be done. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. So open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Let's read this together. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and he sat down, and the disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 3 one more time. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus is describing... What the citizens of this new kingdom, that's us, are going to look like, and there's a word that he keeps using over and over and over again. It's the word blessed. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, on and on and on. And Jesus said, if you live out the Beatitudes, you, hear this, he said, you are going to be blessed and the word blessed is key to understanding what he's saying today and what he's getting at. The word blessed comes from the Greek word makarios. It can be translated into English as blessed. Some translations say happy. But the, at the end of the day, what the word blessed means is the word, hear this, it means fully satisfied. It means fully satisfied. And when Jesus keeps saying the word blessed, that we're blessed if we're poor in spirit, if we're blessed when we're pure in heart and so on, he is making a radically bold claim. And the claim that he's making is this, is that the highest form of human blessing, the greatest possible experience of human satisfaction is found in living out the Beatitudes. That's a bold claim. Now, he, what, what he's not saying, church, is that following Christ is going to be easy. He's not saying that. As a matter of fact, one of the Beatitudes is, it, Beatitudes is blessed are those who are persecuted. And the last time I checked, being persecuted is not easy. But the claim that he is making is that even in the midst of sacrifice, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of suffering, that by following him, that you can experience the highest form of human blessing and satisfaction that is available to us on this planet. Now, at the end of the day, guys, I was thinking about it, and that is really good news for us. 
that Jesus is making this claim that the highest form, that the greatest experience of human satisfaction is found in following him. That is good news for us today, and here's why. Because the vast majority of us, most of us, spend our entire lives looking for satisfaction and we look for blessing in things and people and experiences and places and all these things that do not have the power to actually deliver them. I'm guilty of that in my own life. Um, there have been more times than I can count. But I thought to myself, man, if I only had this thing, if, if I could only get to this stage of life, if I could only experience this, then that's when I'd be happy. That's when real life would begin. That's when I'd be satisfied. But then I get that thing. I get to that stage of life. I have that experience, and what I discover every single time is that it wasn't everything I thought it would be. I'll give you an example. I remember being 15 years old, and I remember thinking to myself, you know what? If I could only get to the place where I'm 16 years old, then I'd be happy. And you know why I thought that? Because when I turned 16, I could start driving. I could go where I wanted to go. I could do what I wanted to do. But one day what happened is I turned 16 and I started driving. And pretty soon I got my first ticket. And I realized pretty quickly that I had to pay for gas and I had to pay for insurance and it hit me. I can drive and yeah, I've got this freedom but it wasn't producing this sort of lasting happiness and joy that I thought it would. This thing that I thought would bring me satisfaction really didn't do it. Being 16 was just life. And so I thought to myself, well, maybe life really begins when I turn 18 and I go to college. That's when I'll be happy. That's when I'll be satisfied. I won't have mom telling me what to do. I'll be free. Life's going to be good. That's when I'll be happy. Well, one day I woke up. I was 18 and I was in college and I had to go to class when I woke up because mom wasn't there to wake me up. And I had finals. And mom wasn't there to cook for me, so I had to go and, and look in the quarters of my couch in, in order to have enough money to go to Taco Bell. And what I discovered really quickly is that college life is just life. This thing that I thought would bring me lasting satisfaction and happiness really didn't do it. So then I thought to myself, well, maybe happiness and blessing and satisfaction is found when I get married and when I get a job and when I have kids. I won't have any class won't have any finals, I'll have a job, so I'll have money, no Taco Bell. But then I woke up one day and I was married and I had a job and I had kids. And make no mistake, being married and having a job and having kids is great, but it, it wasn't everything I thought it would be. It didn't bring me this lasting happiness and satisfaction that I thought I would. You know why? Because I had a mortgage and I had to pay taxes. And I had kids, little kids running around smearing peanut butter on drapes. I had um, uh, my wife that was using all my toilet paper. And this thing that I thought was going to bring me happiness really didn't do it. It was just life. And some of you that go to Sagemont that are a few years older than me, you've, maybe you're in a place where you're thinking about, man, if I could just get to retirement, that's when I'll be happy. That's when I'll be satisfied. And some of you that are retired, you can attest to this. You woke up one day and you're retired, and, and it's not everything you thought it would be. You got a honeydew list a mile long that your wife wants you to do, but then you need a knee replacement, so you can't even really do it. And you think to yourself, I thought that there would be this lasting satisfaction and happiness there, but there's not. And so the words of Jesus, Sagemont, are great news for us today. Because what he's saying 
It's a bold claim, but it's a true claim. He's teaching us that true happiness, true blessing, true satisfaction, I'm talking about the lasting kind. I'm talking about the unshakable kind. I'm I'm talking about the unwavering kind that comes in and it digs down deep in our hearts and it won't let go of us no matter what the circumstance we're walking through can actually be found in this life. But it can only be found in following the person of Jesus Christ. So let's look at the first place where Jesus says this satisfaction can be found. Let's look at it. Let's go to Matthew chapter five. Let's look at verse two. And he says, opening his mouth, he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me read that one time. He said, blessed, fully satisfied, are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, Church, here's what Jesus just said in the first beatitude. He's saying that the highest form of human blessing, the greatest experience of human satisfaction is found when you are poor in spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, the rest of the sermon today, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to answer three questions. I'm going to answer the question, number one, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Jesus says we're blessed if we do it. If we do it, what does it mean when we're poor in spirit? Second question I want to answer is why is it so difficult to be poor in spirit? Because it's not an easy thing to do. And number three, I want to end today by talking about what is promised to those of us who are poor in spirit. So let's look at that first question. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Now, to understand what Jesus is saying, that we're blessed when we're poor in spirit, you got to understand what he's saying when he uses the word poor. What is he talking about? What does it mean when he says you're blessed if you're poor in spirit? That's almost counterintuitive to how we think. Well, here's the thing. There's a couple of Greek words in the New Testament that are translated into English as poor. One word, one Greek word that's translated in English as poor is the kind of poor that you are when you're in college. Okay, you guys know what I'm talking about? Y'all remember being in college and you were kind of poor in college? There's a Greek word that's, you know, roughly translated from Matt Carter is your college poor. Now, when I was at Texas A&M, I experienced college poor. I went to A&M and my parents, I remember they gave me like 50 bucks a month, which back in 92, I thought was a lot of money, but I stunk at budgeting And so I blew through it really quickly. And so about the third week of the month, it hit me. I'm broke. And I can't go out to eat. I can't go on a date. I had zero money. And so in a very real sense, I was poor. But, hear this, I was poor. But I actually had the ability to do something about my poverty. I could go get a job if I wanted to. I had the ability to call my parents and ask for more money. As I said earlier, I could look in the couch for quarters and go to Taco Bell. I was poor. But at some level, I had the ability to provide for myself. That is not the word that Jesus uses when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, now listen carefully. The word that Jesus uses in this phrase in the Greek is the Greek word patakos. And that's key to understanding what he's saying. Patakos is a word that carries with it a much darker picture, a much more ominous picture than college poor. 
Patakas is a word that means that you are absolutely, totally, and completely impoverished. Patakas paints a picture of a, of a person that has zero wealth, zero influence, zero power. And most importantly, hear this, Patakas paints a picture of someone that has absolutely whatsoever no ability to provide for themselves. I wanna show you a picture today of, um, it's a picture that does a good job of explaining to us and showing us what Patakas is. This was a picture that was taken in the 80s during the Ethiopian famine. And I don't remember the name of the photographer, the photographer but he saw this, he stopped and he, and he took a picture. And I don't know about you, just a little side note here, but when I see that picture, the first thing that goes through my mind is, man, put the camera down and help the baby, right? Because what this baby is experiencing is patakas poor. This child isn't college poor. He's patakas poor. And what makes him patakas poor is this poor little child. Listen, look at me. This child has absolutely no ability whatsoever to provide for himself unless some other entity steps into the picture and helps him and provides for him and picks him up, he will die. And Sagemont, that is the word that Jesus uses in this text. Jesus said, you're blessed. You're happy. You're fully satisfied. The greatest level of human satisfaction and blessing is found when you are patakas in your spirit. Now listen to me carefully. Do not miss what I'm about to say because this is what Jesus' point is. Listen carefully. He's saying that the highest form of human blessing is found when you realize that spiritually speaking, apart from Jesus, you're not college poor. You're not middle class poor. Jesus' point is that um, you are blessed when you realize that spiritually speaking, apart from Jesus, you're baby in the middle of an Ethiopian famine kind of poor. And so Jesus is teaching us, if you want to enter his kingdom, that's where you start. If you want to go to heaven, that's where it begins. He's saying that the only way that you or I can enter into the kingdom of heaven is when you and I deeply realize that apart from Jesus Christ, on our own, we are absolutely, positively, spiritually bankrupt with no ability whatsoever to pull ourselves up out of that poverty. Now, what does that look like? What, is, what does poverty of spirit actually look like? He gives us a really accurate picture of it in Luke chapter 18. So Luke chapter 18, verse nine, don't turn there, just listen carefully to what Jesus is saying here. This is Jesus speaking. Luke chapter 18, verse nine. Jesus said, he also <clears throat> told this parable to some who, tr- watch, what, watch what's said here. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And so Jesus is saying, to this, saying this parable and teaching this parable to people 
who weren't trusting in Jesus for their salvation. They weren't trusting in the Father for their salvation. They were trusting in themselves for their salvation. So he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And then he begins the parable. He said, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men. God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other sinners, he said, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. So this guy stood before the Lord and he gave his resume, his spiritual resume. But then there was another one there. It was a tax collector. Watch how the tax collector responded to God in prayer. He said, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. Watch what Jesus says. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Listen carefully, guys. Two people approached God that day. The Pharisee approached God saying, look at all I've done, God. He's saying, I deserve heaven because I'm better than these other people. I deserve heaven because of all I've done for you, God. I deserve heaven because I am righteous. Church, that is not spiritual poverty. That is spiritual arrogance. But then another man approached God that day. The tax collector stood far off. And he couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. And he said, God, be merciful to me because I'm a sinner. Jesus said that man went to his house that day justified. That man went to his house that day saved. That man went to his house that day forgiven. That man went to his house that day receiving the grace of God. But the other man, the Pharisee, Jesus said he did not. Jesus said blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so here's the second question today. Why is it so difficult to possess that? Why is it so difficult for us to be poor in spirit? Jesus says, narrow is the way that leads to life, and few people are going to find it. So it's obvious that spiritual poverty is rare. And so why is it so difficult for us to be poor in spirit? And I think the answer is this, because it goes against everything we've ever been taught in this world. Spiritual poverty is the opposite of what this world tells us we need to be aiming for. Church, the world doesn't value spiritual poverty. It it values self-determination. The world values when, when we're strong in our spirit, separate from God. The world's man mantra, it's like never doubt yourself. Believe in yourself. Prove yourself by pulling up your bootstraps. And by the way, that is why the self-help industry in this country is booming. 
We even see this philosophy permeating the American church, unfortunately. So much, guys, so much of, of what's being taught from the pulpits in America today is a self-help gospel with a little bit of God sprinkled in. When I listen to sermons from around the country, I, I hear things like, you're worthy, and you deserve good things, but when you actually look at this book, when you actually look at the word of God, it tells us we're not worthy, and we don't deserve anything from God, but because he loved us, he sent a son and made us worthy, and gave us the greatest gift of all, which is himself. Too often in the church today, we're being told things like, God wants you to to be free and fulfill your destiny, whatever that means, with nothing limiting you. But when you look at this book, it actually says that we are bond slaves to Christ. That only in being a bond slave to Christ is where real freedom is found. When the angel came to Mary and said, the Lord has chosen you to carry the Son of God, her response was fascinating. She said, Behold, I am the bond slave of the Lord, and he can do with me whatever he wants. That's a picture of a person that is poor in spirit, that is delighted to be connected and have the power of God in her life. If you listen closely to the health, wealth, gospel being preached in the church today, they're teaching you, no doubt, you need to be strong Strong in spirit with no real need for God. And Jesus is saying that the only way that you can enter the kingdom of heaven is when you're poor in spirit. And that's why the self-help gospel is not just wrong, church. It's dangerous. Because the person that is strong in spirit says, I can do this spiritual thing if I work hard enough. But the person that's poor in spirit says, apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. The person that is strong in spirit looks at their sin and says, I, I need some help. I, I need to work on this, but I'm not as bad as all these other people. But the person that is poor in spirit says, wretched man am I who will save me from this body of sin and death. Thanks be to God. Through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for there is now no condemnation person that is strong in spirit looks at other people's sin and says, oh, I'd never do that. But the person that is poor in spirit says, Jesus, if it were not for your grace, I would do that and far worse. And one last one. The person who is strong in spirit, when they're laying on their deathbed, breathing their last, about to face King Jesus on judgment day, will cling to all the good things they've done. Jesus, I went to church in your name. I went to Bible studies in your name. I gave, I tithed in your name. I went on mission trips in your name. But the one who is poor in spirit laying on their deathbed about to face the King of kings and the Lord of lords will say, Jesus, I was a sinner and the only reason you should let me in to your kingdom is because of the blood you shed on the cross that makes me clean. Church, if you hear anything today, I want you to hear this. As long as you and I are clutching on to our own self-importance, 
as long as we're clutching onto our morality and our accomplishments, as long as our hands are full of those filthy rags, our hands will never be empty in order to grasp the unimaginable treasure of God's grace to the poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven is only for those who are poor in spirit, empty-handed, realizing that they have absolutely nothing apart from Jesus. And that brings us to the last question. What's promised to those who are poor in spirit? What's promised to those who are poor in spirit? Let's read one more time. It says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, you said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Watch the last part there. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I saw something not too long ago in this text that I'd never seen before, and when I realized that it sort of kind of blew me away. We think there's one promise in this verse for the poor in spirit, but there's actually two. The first promise is this. He said, we're blessed if we're poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so what Jesus is saying is that before you die, if you have come to him empty-handed and say, Jesus, I am absolutely spiritually impoverished apart from you. I want to receive your grace as a forgiveness of my sins. He said, when you die, you are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's one promise. And it's a beautiful promise. But let's look at this verse one more time because there's a promise in there that most of us miss and it's beautiful. Look at verse three. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Church, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? It means true blessedness, true happiness, the highest form of satisfaction is not just available to you and I one day in heaven, but what he's saying here, the unbelievable blessing of what he's saying is that the highest form of satisfaction and the blessing of the kingdom of heaven is available to you and to me right now, right now. And honestly, church, I'm just being honest with you. I don't really understand or get all the implications of that, but I do know one. And to understand it, I want to ask you a question. To understand what it means that ours is the kingdom of heaven when we're poor in spirit. Here's a question I want to ask you. What's going to be the greatest joy of heaven? What's going to be the greatest joy the greatest pleasure of heaven when we get there? Is it going to be our new bodies? Our new bodies are going to be pretty cool. I'm excited about my new body. I'm 46 years old and I'm getting busted. I'm I'm excited about my new body. That's that's going to be pretty amazing. Maybe, Maybe it's going to be the angels. And we can hear their singing We can see their faces, and maybe we'll hear the stories of all the ways they intervene for us in our lives. Is that going to be the greatest joy of heaven? It's going to be pretty cool. What about the mansions? What about the streets of gold? 
It's not going to be any of that. Those things are going to be amazing. But I'm telling you right now that the greatest joy of heaven is going to be Jesus. Can you imagine that? When you breathe your last... And when you're absent with the body and you're present with the Lord and you stand face to face with Jesus Christ, the lover of your soul, the author of your salvation, the King of kings and the Lord of your lords, and you're standing face to face with Jesus, I promise you that there will be nothing in heaven that will compare to that. And Jesus says, if you come to me, poor in spirit, you are blessed. You are blessed fully satisfied. You can experience the highest form of human satisfaction available to man on this planet. Why? Jesus is saying, because if you do that, I'm going to give you me. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you myself. And if he is the greatest joy of heaven, I promise you, church, he's going to be the greatest joy here on earth. And he's offering himself to you today. Last question, and we're done. If the greatest joy of heaven is Jesus, and he's offering himself to you right now, then why in the world would you try to find joy here on earth in any other place but him? Some of you have been on that um, journey to find happiness, like I talked about earlier in the sermon. Right now, as we speak, you're trying to find the fullness of joy in this world. How's it working out for you? Some of you are trying to find blessing and satisfaction in your job, retirement. You're trying to find the fullness of joy in your marriage. You're trying to find this sense of satisfaction in your children or your grandchildren. Some of you even are trying to find it in the desires of your flesh. And if that's you today, Jesus says, child of God, you're looking for blessing in all the wrong places. Because none of those things will ever have the ability to deliver, not for long. And Jesus says, real blessing, true blessing is found in one place, and it's him. And so we're about to sing a song together. It's called, Lord, I Need You. I love this song. And it says, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. You're my one defense. You're my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. When, when we see, when we sing those words, I don't want you to just sing them at home. I want you to think about what you're saying. Oh, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. You are my one defense. You are my righteousness. So, oh, God, how I need you. Church, that is a song of the poor in spirit. And so let's sing it today. But more importantly, let's live it today. And when we do, we're going to find life. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed,
those that are in the sound of my voice, there's some of you maybe that have been going to church for years. Maybe you've been serving, maybe you've been giving. But if you're honest, there was, there's never been a time in your life where, where like the tax collector, you got on your knees and you were so aware of your spiritual poverty, of your desperate need for Jesus, that you got on your knees and you beat your chest and you say, oh God, I'm a sinner, have mercy on me. If you've never done that, do it today. And Jesus says, I'm gonna bless you with the kingdom of heaven. You're gonna find life there. Now there's some of you in the sound of my voice, you've never trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've never come to him. And the reason you've never come to him is because you think your sin is too big for God's grace. I've met people that have said, Matt, if God knew what I've done, if he saw the ways that I failed, he'd never receive me. I have fallen too far for God to ever save me, for God to ever use me. If that is you right now, I want to, I want to tell you something. If you think, man, I have messed up too bad for God to love me or God to save me, I want you to forget that because you are exactly the kind of person that God is looking for to save. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So come to him today in the best way you know how. Father, God, apart from you, I can do absolutely nothing. I'm a sinner, but I thank you for the cross where you shed your blood and said, it is finished, and I was made clean and I was made new. Father, I pray for any within the sound of my voice that right now are professing their spiritual poverty to you, Lord. I pray you would save them. I pray you'd forgive them, that you'd make them new creations in you. I ask these things today because you are the only one that can do them. And so we love you and we praise you and we exalt you. Somebody in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray.